we stand today. The Business Method the business with method. a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high-performance experts dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. We've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today. The billionaire CEO of Priceline, Jeff Hoffman, the CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, world's top big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, the first black woman to build a billion dollar company, Janet Halroyd, world's top investment expert, Jim Rogers, and the list goes on and on. All of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and any podcast app you prefer. Also, you guys, have you started listening to our micro high performance episodes yet? We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just 2 to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode. The Business Method. Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that want to be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermosi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time. Our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network, connect with some of the brightest minds in business today, and help one another overcome business challenges faster. You can learn more about our community at thebusinessmethod.com. Remember, subscribe to stay updated. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Listeners, welcome to the show. And today, we have a pioneer from the early days of social networking and one of the co-founders of LinkedIn on the podcast. We are going to get behind the mind and the story of how the world's largest online business network got its start. He co-founded LinkedIn with Reid Hoffman, Alan Blue, Jean-Luc Valiant, and Eric Lee, and his name is Constantine Gierka. 
LinkedIn went public in 2011 for $4 billion and was purchased by Microsoft in 2016 for $26 billion. Recognizing the potential of the internet with its vast networking possibilities, Constantine and his future co-founder, Reid Hoffman, developed the idea for LinkedIn. Constantine led the company's marketing to profitability. For the first few years, he focused on positioning, branding, viral marketing, user engagement emails, and media relations. Later, he also managed LinkedIn groups, international expansion, and the corporate sales team. In May of 2003, LinkedIn was officially released. They had 81,000 users by the end of that year, over half a million by their 12-month mark, and 4.5 million users by the end of their second year. We're going to dive dive in the LinkedIn story with Constantine and how he's been making an impact in the entrepreneurial world since he left LinkedIn. Constantine, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you? Good. Good to be here, Chris. Yeah, I'm honored to have you on the show. Um, it's always great to get behind the minds and the stories behind these these companies that that they they grew so big and you know we all you know they made a movie out of the Facebook story and we get to know the Twitter story but I think a, a lesser known story is the LinkedIn story but equally as effective on um, what it's done for the world in many ways and I think it's just thoroughly thoroughly impressive what you guys have done but you started way back in the day in a small village in Germany and came to America for high school for, I think, one or two years. Was that right? Yeah, I came as an exchange student. I lived in Pennsylvania with a host family. So Okay. Yeah. And then was that the inspiration for you wanting to live in America and go to Stanford? Yeah. I mean, I think the idea started percolating there when I was at high school. There are colleges that kind of, you know, marketed themselves to the seniors. And so I, you know, that's when I first sort of learned about campus life. And uh, I finished high school in Germany, but then, you know, I had the idea of maybe uh, applying to some American universities. And uh, that's how I ended up coming here for for college and then kind of stayed on. In so what what was it about being was there something about being in the United States that felt different than being, you know, in your small village in Germany that 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 kind of called to you and made you want to come to the US? So one I was interested in in technology, specifically uh -huh. in software, um which at the time was not that common because in the mid 80s, you know, sort of hardware was the king, IBM and Intel. Uh, but to me, the, the hardware seemed like the body and the software seemed like the brains. And I just always thought, you know, our brains are the most interesting part of us. And, mm -hmm. and I felt like that's what's going to have the most impact software. And it felt like Silicon Valley was going to be the center. And so, yeah, so that drew me kind of to, to be at the center of things. You know, like if I'd grown up in another era, you know, let's say when religion ruled the world, I probably would have tried to go to the center of religion. Yeah. And, you know, maybe when politics ruled the world, I, I might have gone to Paris, you know, where the, where the, you know, King Louis, you know, was, was at the center of things. But yeah. I felt technology is going to transform sort of these uh, next century or two. So I just felt like I wanted to be here at the center of it. And it kind of has come to pass, you know, the technology is not just one of the sectors like others, but it is kind of the sector, in my view, that's transforming, you know, anything from consumer products like toys, healthcare to, you know, many, many uh, transportation, uh, many other sectors. 
Would you still consider Silicon Valley the the tech hub of the world? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is it is possible to start companies, you know, other places, and but a lot of people are are ones that you know maybe got their start in Silicon Valley. But certainly, it is possible to start you know tech companies, you know, other places. But in some ways, I consider you know these other places being sort of of the same spirit as Silicon Valley and doing things in the same way. So there are, in some ways, you know, similar droppings. You know, like like Austin or Boulder or yeah. even Berlin are, are are very similar in spirit of Silicon Valley and the similar people and similar work cultures, et cetera. Yeah, I think I just spent the past couple of years in Austin, and I think Austin's trying to give it a big, a, a good fight uh, mm-hmm. to become, <laughs> to try and become the new tech capital of the world. But we'll see what happens. Um, so you, you you guys started LinkedIn way back in 2003. I think the first I heard about LinkedIn was probably 2006. And at the time, I was working in real estate in Phoenix, and I went to a it was like a, sort of a networking event and a guy did a presentation on LinkedIn. And I, I, I this was 2006 and I thought to myself, ah, this LinkedIn thing isn't going to work. It's too technical. You know, by now we've had MySpace was big. Uh, Friendster was gone, but um, Facebook was big on the scene. And I was like, this this will never work. And um, that was after like a 45 minute presentation on this on yeah. this guy explaining why he thought LinkedIn was the next big thing. And, and I was wrong. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I admit like I made a, a bad call on that. But um, um, but it's amazing what LinkedIn has grown into. And I don't even know how many users does LinkedIn have now? I think it's closing in on one billion, um, and somewhere really? like wow. eight, eight to nine hundred million. I think somewhere in that range. Yeah. That's incredible, and and so it, it has grown into this behemoth. Um, but tell us about the early days. What what sparked the initial idea for you guys to say we think this thing can work? Well, I think we saw that in business, um, business trust is kind of at the core of a lot of, you know, how business really works. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether you look at sort of when you look for a service provider, or let's say you are looking to provide your services to someone, you know, there's just trust involved in hiring someone. And so a lot of people, when they're looking, let's say they're looking for a PR agency or for a lawyer, um, sure, you can look in the yellow pages or later on the internet at web pages, um, but but in the end, people often like to get you know by recommendation. Same if you're looking for an architect, you know mm-hmm. they they talk to other people who've recently built a house and like, hey, which architect did you use, or and so forth. So or if you're looking for a nanny or babysitter, same thing mm-hmm. you know, you look for that. And employees, same thing. There were job portals out there. You know, Monster was the big one at the time. Right. And, and a lot of people were sending in resumes, but they weren't getting responses. On the other hand, if an employee was saying, hey, I work with with this lady or this guy before, then, um, you know, these people were much likely to get interviews. So and it was about the transfer of trust that was happening. And so if there was a way to do that online by showing sort of who knows whom and being able to you know, visualize that, being able to do that in a more effective way, because it was often really hard to know. 
Um, let's say you have 100, 200 contacts. Each of your employees at the company is 100 to 200 contacts. How do you know who, who these people know? Uh, same in a sales situation. You know, if you are at a company with 2,000 employees, you're looking to sell to a certain company, wouldn't it be nice to know which of your people know someone at that company, um, either to get a warm introduction or maybe just to get some intelligence, like, you know, who's the boss of this, this person that I'm selling to? So all these use cases basically cried out for some system to, like, make these relationships visible. And, and that's kind of what we, what we decided to do. Can you tell us about the moment that who who had the first idea for this? But I also know, was this also kind of a continuation of there was another business network that that I think emerged in the late 90s and early 2000s before you guys and then it failed, right? Um, yeah, they were there were several business networks before us. Um, the sort of I'd say the best known was one called Rise. Um, okay. You know, I'm actually friends with Adrian Scott, who started that a couple of years before us. There were some well-funded ones that started before us. Um, Spoke was one. There was uh, another one that I don't remember right now. But this whole concept about connecting people and seeing sort of these degrees of separation was actually happened uh, five or six years before. There was um, uh, the earliest I remember was a company called SixDegrees.com. Yeah, um, that's and, one I remember. Yeah, and there were others uh, called Branch Out and Planet All. Um, you know, the most famous one that sort of was in the second wave was the one that you mentioned, Friendster. Mm -hmm. um, that really got big. Um, so, and then there were before us a lot of other social ones that competed with Friendster, like Tribe. And uh, soon after us, Orchid started, which was launched by Google. And that combined sort of social and business. So uh, there were they've always been a lot of social networks. And you know, when I give presentations, sometimes I made a slide of over fifty business networks that have been launched over over the years. So oh. so it's a it's been a very active space. But you know, in the last ten years, there've been you know fewer and fewer launched. But the first ten years of LinkedIn, there was definitely a lot of activity around this. What do you think made LinkedIn successful or stand apart? Like, what was it? The platform? Was it just the time, the right timing? Um, what was it that made it blow up the way that it did and and stay uh, mm -hmm. successful? Well, I think the the network effects um, are very significant. Um, business people have very little time, and once a network is established. Um, they are unlikely to sort of invest the time to invite their contacts to yet another business network. So that's, um, you know, once sort of one is established as the leader, um, there's very little interest in that. And so I think it's a very different dynamic from the social networks where it's a lot more about being cool. And so sort of like, you know, what's happening with Facebook now, you know, you've seen sort of for the first time in the history, they announced the base has declined. And for a lot of the, you know, the younger kids, it's no longer the cool place to be because their right. parents are on it, right? So they're going to Instagram. Now, Facebook was smart enough to purchase Instagram. Yeah. So they still, <laughs> it's still, you know, doing well as a company. Um, but, you know, the truck, you know, if they hadn't purchased Instagram and uh, WhatsApp, cool. And as you know, you know, Friendster went down after a while. Uh, MySpace went down after a while. So in social networks, you know, 
companies have have come and gone versus on the business side linkedin has been just incredibly steady growth not as fast as the social networks but there hasn't been you know any kind of turnover um, like that so the dynamics are very different in social and business and when we started a lot of people felt you know because social grew much faster than they said look there is no space for a separate business network because the social networks can simply ask their users to enter their company and their position and then you know there won't be any room for a business network because why maintain two separate profiles when you can have one right but our belief is that most people would want to keep it separate and that turned out to be true and can you tell us about so the way i heard it constantine was that um, you and Reed would go on, you know, walks chatting about, you know, what what to create or uh, brainstorming. And was there a moment when you guys thought, let's create a different type of, of business network? And it kind of sparked like the ingenious in you? Or was it over a time of co- like conversations back and forth between you guys before it all came together? Yeah, we had actually been talking for, oh gosh, I think at least four years about this. So it wasn't like a sudden thing. And because we had been watching and trying out these other networks for quite a while. Um, And so so it wasn't a sudden thing or it's just something we've always been interested in. And I think when, you know, it was a combination of, um, you know, just timing of being available and also seeing kind of the rise of Friendster and feeling the window of opportunity was about to close because, both Friendster was getting, you know, getting pretty big and some business networks were starting up with lots of financing that if we knew about this network effect, that if, if there was one business network that was going to have network effects, that we wouldn't be able to launch it anymore. So it was sort of time to either <laughs> decide not to do it or to really do it. So it kind of was a combination of things that we went forward, forward with it. And we had to also work out you know, it's not just about the number of people, which, you know, I call quantity. It was also about the quality of people. Um, because if you have a network where everybody is looking for a client or everybody's looking for a job, that's not going to be a valuable network. You need sort of both sides of it. You need people who are hiring, who are looking for service providers. Mm-hmm. Same thing. You can't just have entrepreneurs looking for financing. You also need the venture capitalists who provide the financing. You can't just have salespeople. You need people who are you know, purchasing products and services as well, about how those people can be flooded with inquiries. You know, and that's where the trust and the mechanism of introductions was really crucial to the initial design. And that's where some of the other business networks failed. You're asking me why we succeeded. And you know, I think partly as we avoided, we saw some of the mistakes that some of the other companies were doing and we learned from them and, and, and that, you know, made us succeed. And I would say almost like our success was more like other companies having sort of crucial failures in the way they designed the system. They didn't think through kind of the social feedback loops that would happen that would drive out the quality of people. And the quality is very important. Uh, mm-hmm. When you have the quality of people in it, the quantity comes And you need to put some restrictions into the communication patterns, because if it's just a free flow of information, that drives out the quality of people, just like in the real world. The quality people are not easily accessible. Um, 
And that's that's on purpose. And you have to replicate that in a, in a system to work. Was this uh, were you guys bootstrapping? bootstrapping LinkedIn or did you have investment? Well, we were fortunate. Uh, Reed had a successful exit with PayPal when it was, uh, when it went public. And so he was able to provide sort of the financing that we could hire some developers right away. Mm -hmm. And so that made it easy. We didn't have to go for for fundraising right away. Um, And so we were able to sort of skip the, typically that's an angel round right away. So we had our internal angel, so to speak. And then we raised a Series A once we had about 40,000 members, um, which wasn't huge, but at least there was, you know, some proof that people were willing to create profiles and invite their connections. And um, and we got Sequoia Capital, which is a a great name in venture capital. So that was helpful to get other employees to to join. When did you guys know that LinkedIn was going to work? I would say once we really passed the other business networks in terms of numbers. Um, okay. What was that number it? roughly? Do you remember? Uh, about a million. Okay. Uh, that's when we got our Series B with Greylock. Um, at that time, we had passed kind of comfortably the other business networks, and our daily signups were also significantly higher. At that point, I would say most of the risk was taken out of the business. Now, we hadn't earned a cent yet. We hadn't tried to earn a cent because... We knew the network effects was going to be the most important thing. And we felt pretty comfortable. Once you got a lot of business people on your platform, we figured there is going to be a way to to earn money from this. Um, And we felt it was actually much more predictable. I mean, I think we actually underestimated how much money you can make from social networks as well. Um, They've done very well, you know, the Facebooks and Pinterests and Twitters. Mm -hmm. Um, but we always felt very confident in business when we're facilitating things like sales and hiring um, and, um, you know, for brands, for B2B marketing, that there would be a way to to earn money from this. Yeah, I think that the and you talked about this, but the, the growth of LinkedIn is is absolutely incredible. By I think the end of two years, you were close to 5 million, right around 4.5 million or so. And, um, and it's very true because you mentioned trust is so important in doing business when, but there's also the six degrees of separation, um, where, you know, you have six people, you know, and the next person has six people and it continues and continues until it's this massive network. Um, do you feel like you were, you know, I know you worked on growth, um, specifically in the company. Do you feel like you were pivotable, uh, pivotable for the, for LinkedIn to grow the way that it did as rapidly as it did? Well, I mean, it's, it's a team effort when you work, you know, at a startup, um, everybody contributes ideas, um, but there was definitely a rigor to it. So, um, my role was, was marketing, um, Actually, my interest was the service marketplace where, you know, how a service provider find clients and clients service providers. Mm-hmm. I did that for a few years and I saw a lot of potential in it, but we didn't have the critical mass, you know, to do that at the time. So I focused kind of on what was needed in the company, which was this marketing and to both establish the brand that people really know you know, that LinkedIn was for business, uh, which was very important because it was very easy to, with all these social networks at the time going on, to kind of throw them all in one pot and see them kind of all social networks as the same thing, pretty much. Yeah. Um, But I also, my background is engineering. And so I have kind of a quantitative approach to it. And 
using sort of the techniques of, of viral marketing, you know, A-B testing, and then looking at the right numbers to see, you know, what works, what doesn't work, because we grew almost exclusively through the invitations that our members sent out to other members. Um, that was um, over 90%. And then um, looking also how to use this type of um, thing for engaging members, um, because we, we sent out some emails to engage members to come back to the site, but what we found was actually, you know, certain members just would not respond to our emails to come back to the site, but they would respond if, you know, their existing contacts would send messages to them and that brought them back to the site. So, so using, you know, existing members sending messages, not only to sign up new members, but also bring existing members back to the site uh, was really critical to our success. I think most entrepreneurs know that that um, the hardest lessons that we encounter throughout our careers are some are quite often the most important lessons and best lessons to learn from. What do you think was one of the uh, hardest lessons for you guys to learn in the early days of LinkedIn? I think we overestimated, you know, how many people would get sort of the utility of LinkedIn. Um, you know, we thought, because we we saw the utility of, you know, getting introduction, you know, when you have a business problem, um, you know, we thought of the business problems because all the, you know, you mentioned all the five founders and we all had about 10 years of business experience at the time. And we experienced in our career you know, that when we had a business problem, it almost always boiled down to finding a person. So, um, you know, let's say you need something, you know, you need a person to help you with something, whether it's um, a contractor, whether it's, you know, someone you hire, or you need some expertise, uh, some information. Now, some information you can just Google and find on the internet. Um, but that's really the most important information that gives you competitive advantage, because guess what? Your competitors can Google as well. So the, the, the most important competitive information resides in someone's head that's not available in Google. So even that boils down to finding a person who has certain expertise. So how do, so it becomes a people search problem. So when you really think about, you know, anything that, you need to do, whether you're looking for a speaker for a conference or um, for some certain expertise to solve a problem, it almost always becomes both a people search problem and then a way to get that person's attention. Mm -hmm. And so we saw the utility of LinkedIn as something that you use on a, on a daily or at least weekly basis. But a lot of our members didn't really get that. And so they wouldn't visit the site very often because they just sort of signed up and then often would even forget that LinkedIn existed. And it's very hard then to get them to invite other members to remember, you know, when they actually have a use for it to come back to, you know, earn income from that. So, so we tried all kinds of things, you know, about around education and so forth. Um, but that was, you know, a big challenge for us, you know, trying to figure out. And I think LinkedIn is still struggling with that to this day. I mean, there's certain groups of the membership, certainly the recruiters, you know, are using it daily, you know, a lot. 
certain people who do market research like hedge funds use it you know extensively mm-hmm. um, i think a lot of people in business development and sales use it quite extensively but there are vast swaths of professionals you know who just you know kind of have their profile up and use it quite passively you know i think certain people use it kind of for the for the news to kind of keep up on professional news um, that's kind of a lighter use of it um, but that has proven to be you know somewhat successful to engage the the broader swath of professionals and that was one of the things we had not in mind when we started it but we needed something that engages a broader set of people who don't sort of see that people people search aspect of it yeah it's amazing how these social networks really connect people and in LinkedIn, especially for the business connections. I have a, a good friend named Tom who built a, a recruiting agency over the past three and a half years, I've guessed, and, and mainly reaching out to people through LinkedIn uh, that need jobs. And he's done a really good job for himself. Um, also, I've used LinkedIn to get people on the podcast um, we got the CEO of Foot Locker, uh, Luke Kimball on the show and a handful of others, but it's just incredible. Like how close, um, how closely connected we are with tools like that. And, and they've served the purpose. Now I'm curious, like LinkedIn, um, well, we'll talk about Facebook. Facebook has went through this, uh, this curve of growth. And you mentioned this is the last year was the first year uh, Facebook actually lost uh, or didn't grow as as much as it did in the previous year. Yeah, I think they, lost they, yeah, well, not members, but active users. I think that's okay. what they found, you know, I think last quarter or something. I, I didn't follow it exactly, but I saw it on my newsfeed somewhere. Okay, gotcha. And, and so Facebook has gone through this thing of, uh, in the early days, it was a strange thing. Then people started to trust it and use it. Then it became kind of the cool thing. Then it became massive. It became part of everybody's lives and then it's it's almost the anti cool thing now for many for the younger generations and for a lot of people and it's it it started to decline a little bit um i'm curious if you think that that'll happen with linkedin um or what are your projections for linkedin over the next say five to ten years well, every every digital service, you know, has its end. Uh, so, you know, one day, you know, you know, just like AT and T, you know, declined at some point, right. and IBM declined, and uh, you know, Amazon will decline, and Google will decline, and so there's, you know, LinkedIn will be no exception. Um, but some are are long, you know, have have more longevity than others, and mm-hmm. I would predict that LinkedIn is one that will have, you know significant longevity because of these network effects. Now, part of it, how long it lasts also depends on management decisions. I think it is less likely to be dethroned by someone else just because it has some kind of new feature. Uh, Now, sometimes if there's a really disruptive technology coming up, that presents a new opportunity. For example, when you look at the dating market, you know, Match.com was super successful and a lot of competitors, you know, didn't really have much of a chance because of the network effects. But when the mobile phone came along, it mm-hmm. kind of opened up an opportunity for Tinder, you know, to come along. 
But I think, I'm not sure, but I think maybe the parent company of Mesh.com bought Tinder. So again, so sometimes, you know, people are smart, just like Facebook bought Instagram, which was again, kind of a mobile version of Facebook, but, Mm -hmm. you know, adjusted to like the newer generation. Um, Some of these tech companies can be pretty smart and then ensure their survival by buying sort of the new hot thing. And the parent company can survive even if their signature service is, is dying off over time. So you know, maybe Microsoft is the new parent company of LinkedIn, you know, if LinkedIn at some point is declining, will buy the, who knows, the augmented reality version of the new business network and, you know, will continue to dominate this this segment. So we'll see. Yeah. A lot of times we think, you know, these, these companies are too big to fail and then something comes in and completely revolutionizes. Like mm-hmm. who would have thought that an app on your phone could replace taxis? you know, mm-hmm. and completely just dominated the market, um, which is fascinating to see because there's always something new that can come in and it keeps, it should keep founders on their toes. Are there any uh, original founders that are still involved with LinkedIn? Yes. Alan Blue, as far as I know, is is still there. You know, all yeah. the others left quite a few years ago, but, uh, you know, last time I talked with Alan, you know, He's probably a little there. beginning of the pandemic, I think uh, he was, he was still there. Yeah. So, so I asked you what was um, kind of the, the biggest challenge or, or lesson that you guys learned in the early days. For you personally, what was the most exciting thing being a, being a part of LinkedIn? Well, I think it's just been great to, well, in the early days, um, you know, a lot of my personal friends really didn't see kind of how this could be successful. You know, they're mm-hmm. very skeptical um, they would sort of join just because to personally support me, you know, just in because it wasn't that much effort to create a profile and invite a few of their business contacts. So, so they were supportive, just like good, good friends and business contacts would. But, mm-hmm. you know, I could see that it was sort of like, yeah, I don't see this really working out. And, you know, for a lot of them, you know, I could see sort of two, three, four years in. They would come back and, you know, and I would encourage them. Often I would have lunch with them and sort of be sort of a personal trainer for them and ask them, hey, you know, have you used it? Have you used it? And they'd say, often they would say no. And I was like, okay, what's going on in your professional life? And they would tell me like what's, you know, what they're working on, what the challenges were. And I would sort of do this thing that we talked about. It's like, well, you know, in order to solve this problem, you know, what do you need to do? And I'm like, well, you know, I need to hire this person. I need to get this information. I'm like, well, you, you know, you could use LinkedIn to find this. And you, it's like, how? And like, well, do this kind of search, <laughs> you know? And sometimes I would send them like a, a query, you know, as a link and they would click on it. I was like, holy moly, like, like this is really helpful. And then later they would tell me, you know, or other people who were looking for a new position, you know, I said like, go, go to LinkedIn. And I was like, you know, they would go to a monster or something and, and, and just on LinkedIn, they would just find contacts who they didn't know would work at that company. And so by year three or four, I would find a lot of my contacts were really excited about LinkedIn because it had done something meaningful in their lives and sort of that was transformational either for, for their job or in terms of getting them a job or getting them a client. So you know, and that's why you, I think, start companies. You want to affect something in the world. Um, people could also see, people would use it a lot for checking references. You know, when you hire someone, you ask them for references. 
And often they're not very interesting because people handpick, you know, the three or four people they know they're going to say something good. But especially if you're hiring someone sort of at an executive level, what goes on is you, tr you sort of ignore almost the three or four people they provide and you try to find other people who've worked with them in the past. So you kind of go to your, I don't know, business school buddies that you think might have known someone who worked with them at that company who they didn't provide and ask them. Um, and, and they will often tell you things that, you know, are very interesting to know about because, and there's mutual trust because you went to school with one of their contacts and they weren't on that sheet of references, which can be interesting. Um, and then you find out either, yeah, this person is very strong, you know, in these areas, some weaknesses in these areas. And that gives you either the confidence to hire them or you decide to pass on them. Now with LinkedIn, we actually had a very special feature for our premium members called Reference Search that would make that automatic, that would show you, you know, kind of a time overlap, which people on LinkedIn worked at the same company at the same time and that are close to you, that either your contacts know or contacts of your contacts know. And they would, you know, so it was very uh, useful for that. And I think one of the things that I liked about this feature, now I don't know if LinkedIn still has that feature, but it made everyone aware how small the world is and, um, and it caused them to behave better in business because yeah. sometimes people, you know, in meetings can sort of not behave well. And, you know, maybe in their last week of work, just sort of really let it hang out. But if you become aware that everybody that you've worked with might be a reference for you later on. Yeah. And you and you and also because your resume is now kind of a public commodity, um, I think people will, you know, behave better with each other than they did before LinkedIn. Holds them accountable, right? Yeah. Um you worked with user engagement while you were with LinkedIn and I'm curious, is there any any all all of the, the social media platforms that are out there, do you think any of them lack? Is there is there a space for another one to come in and and grab user engagement that other platforms aren't hitting in your mind? Well, I think on the social side, there's always opportunity because there is sort of the built-in interest in doing something different. Mm -hmm. On the business side, I think the opportunity is in, in some specialized networks. Mm, okay. Because the more you specialize in one area, the more relevant you can make the contact. Mm -hmm. The problem is that there is a lot of benefit of bringing different people together. So, for example, there have been some attempts, for example, for like a legal network. The problem with that is if you bring a bunch of lawyers together in agencies, well, a lot of them work with lawyers who are inside the companies with the corporate lawyers. And a lot of the corporate lawyers then work with their departments inside companies. Yeah. So where do you draw the line? And, you know, maybe the marketing person who works with an internal lawyer, you know, doesn't necessarily want to work, you know, want to sign up for a legal network when they're already on LinkedIn. So in the end, you know, the, the people who work at law firms, you know, just, and they're already on LinkedIn too. So it, it's very difficult, even though, you could provide much more interesting services to lawyers, supporting their legal transactions, et cetera. Um, so so that there are probably opportunities, kind of like how Craigslist supports job listings, um, you know, rental, you know, apartment rentals, housing, 
um, and etc. But there are you know specialized versions of Craigslist. So I think there can be some opportunities you know in the professional world to create more professional networks. So I I joined the board of directors of two of them that I thought had promise. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, one's called Rally Point, which is a network for the military, for both veterans and active duty military. It's a great because they tend they tend to be quite different from the professional world, just the way they they work. You know, if you fight a war, it's quite different from you know sitting in the office. Your experience, um, as well as you know, when you're active duty and later when you uh, transition to be a veteran. And the other one is for doctors, and also the world of doctors is is very different. You know, like the way you work with patients is not like a lawyer works with with their clients because you often want to really kind of have a have a wall in between right like it's not like like you don't hang out with your doctors very often you know they they right. have a front office that separates from you um, and they hang out with each other much more yeah i i think that makes total sense and in a lot of like you mentioned there's a lot of networks that are um, blazing the trail to create these more niche niched networks. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I, I, I talk about the example. Um, there's a dating website for people that love horses. If you, if you're like, who would think of that? Right. You know, yeah. and, and it works. Um, well, it was around, you know, five, six, seven years ago. I don't know if it's still around now, but my friend's mom was on it and, uh, and it's a thing. And, and she dated people that also loved horses and, and eventually married a guy. So, um, yeah, the, the niche net networks, I think are definitely going to be pop up more and more and more. Um, oh, I had a question. I think I lost it. Um, <laughs> oh, what, what year? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was thinking, yeah. I mean, one great idea I heard about dating, I don't know how they're doing, but someone, some entrepreneur, you know, I like to go on walks with, you know, if entrepreneurs want to get some advice, I usually invite them to go on a walk because that's one thing I, in my lifestyle is these days. But he was uh, building a, a dating site for, um, for people with disabilities. Mm. And I can see how, you know, like for them, it's really hard, like on a regular dating site, but with each other, you know, and and you have, you know, much more specific things on your profile that you need when you have disabilities and to match them up based on, you know, what works and what doesn't. So I thought that's, you know, very, uh, you know, I could see that really working really well, but also be a really good service that is needed in society. On, on the topic of dating, uh, if anybody out there wants to create a entrepreneurial dating uh, platform, you've got my money. I'll send it to you <laughs> your way. <laughs> um, so what year, Constantine, did you did you eventually leave uh, LinkedIn? Um, I think it was 2007, maybe. Yeah. Okay. And were you just ready for a change? Were you you wanted to go blaze some trails somewhere else? Or well, actually, someone contacted me on LinkedIn <laughs> through a Fancy. former client of mine through an introduction, through a trusted introduction, and uh, they didn't contact me first for a full time opportunity. They contacted me to to join their board of advisors, and it was kind of an interesting company that married um, social networks with uh, mobile phones. And, uh, you know, I was intrigued by opportunities where I know something, but I can also learn something. I'm kind of consider myself a lifelong learner, yeah. Um, but I also want to contribute something wherever I go. So having something that's a combination of the two. And it was something that I could do on the side. By that time, LinkedIn was, you know, like we had 
sort of past this milestone of you know being sort of the runaway leader on the network effect side or you know we had become profitable on a monthly basis so um, you know i had a little more room to sort of have a little bit of an extracurricular activity so i joined the board of advisors and you know there are some interesting people there that's always interesting to me as well um, i like to meet people not so much at networking events but through some professional engagement by actually working together um, and so i joined that board and you know they they raised some money from from good investors and then they asked me to join as ceo i'd never been ceo before and i i saw a lot of good growth opportunity so so then i you know then they asked me if i would join as ceo and i thought long and hard about it um, but i felt again it was kind of more of that early stage opportunity that i really loved i thought mm -hmm. they had a lot of growth opportunities um and you know, it was a growth opportunity for me personally as well to sort of manage not just marketing, but also engineering and all the rest of it. So I, uh, you know, after consulting with with Reed, I decided to to go for that. So, so it was, uh, yeah, I think, I think it was, uh, it was the right thing for me at the time. Um, so what are you up to today? I know, I know you're passionate about serving on boards and mentoring other entrepreneurial students. Um, and then also you served, I think worked with VCs in Europe as well. Uh, what are, what are the main projects that you focus on now? Yeah. So, you know, I feel fortunate that, um, you know, I, you know, sort of resources have come to me, but I feel also a responsibility to do something useful with them. So I am interested in starting a philanthropic organization. Um, so that'll be more, um, you know, I don't think it'll look like just donating money to other people's, um, you know, projects, but it'll be probably more starting my own, again, kind of an, in an entrepreneurship way. Mm -hmm. um, I'm still looking around what that would look like, but I'm tentatively looking at preserving natural resources. Um, as you mentioned, I love the outdoors. I, uh, I hike, um, I think typically 20, 25 miles every week. Um, so I am, uh, I'm benefiting from other people who have preserved nature, you know, for people like me. Um, so I would, you know, probably like to continue that tradition and expand on that for the public to enjoy. Uh, and I'm also interested in, uh, in teenagers. I think the teenage years are uh, a very special time of our lives because that's where you sort of form your values and your identity. Um, you know, before your teenagehood, you're kind of very influenced by your parents of you know, how you think and who you think you are and what your values are. And by the time you're 25, you know, a lot of people have formed. So, you know, your values and your identity and it doesn't change as much anymore. So, so I think that's a, a, a good time to try to make a positive influence in people's lives. So, so those are my, my you know, I'm exploring things in that, that area. So um, not so many uh, commercial interests in my life right now. Oh, nice. Um, so before the podcast, we were discussing um, kind of your view on productivity, productivity. And, and I think I agree with your perspective on it, especially as a creative and somebody that likes to think out of the box. Um, there's the old notion of, you know, uh, to be productive, you have to hustle. And um, 
I, and then I have a good friend who told me once, it really opened my eyes, kind of was an aha moment, where he said, you know, a lot of people don't consider thinking work, and quite often thinking is the most important work that we can do, which is probably why you go on a lot of walks. It's a great time mm-hmm. to think, I would imagine. Um, I do the same. I do walks and jogs. And um, so what I'd like to ask you about, Constantine, is more of um, your views on productivity from an effective uh, or efficient mindset as opposed to a hustle mindset. Yeah, so I think to me, two keys are the ability to make decisions and breaking, you know, change into small steps. So um, decision-making and the ability to make decisions, I think, is key. It is very easy to be busy. And I think the focus that people have on productivity is often, you know, people feel good about being busy. And it's almost like a badge of honor that people wear that. Um, But it's sort of like putting, you know, how many stones can you put into your bucket? Um, and then people say like, look, I, I put this many stones in my bucket and how heavy is your bucket? How many stones did you manage to put in there? And we feel good about that. But I think that's not really, you know, how you make as much progress towards your goal as possible. I think what you need to figure out is what stones do you put into your bucket? You know, which stones do you select? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's actually the harder work because you have to make decisions. Which stone do you put in? You know, big ones, round ones, what shape, what color, and so forth. And I think people often, the reason people just put stones in is because that is the harder choice. You have to prioritize. And often, you know, you have to reflect on that, but just decision-making is often hard because people feel like, oh, I might regret, you know, putting this stone in and not that stone. So, but I think that's putting the right stones in the bucket is often what, you know, you make the most progress towards your goals. So to me, that's that's what I call effectiveness versus efficiency. Efficiency is just, you know, there's just kind of grabbing stones and putting as many as you can in the bucket versus effectiveness. I call that, you know, selecting, deciding which stones are most important and then putting those into your bucket. Um, and that's how you make the most progress towards your goals. I mean, and, you know, you need to know what your goals are also in the first place. Yeah. The second thing is breaking down whatever you want to change. Um, You know, if we're not, you know, we all, in order to be better, we need to change. And it's very difficult to change. Um, The main reason is, um, you know, at Stanford, I learned about what's called the fundamental attribution error. And we're especially prone to that. I mean, all humans are prone to that, but especially in Western society. And that is we attribute things to people rather than situations. So we, you know, that's why we think about heroes. You know, they, they are the amazing people or villains. They are the really bad people. The reality is that the way we act is usually because of situations and the systems that are around us. And when you put another person in the same situation in the same system, you know, even very different people that will often act in the same way. Mm-hmm. So that's what we have to be really aware of. And that's why it's so difficult to change. Um, that's why it's, for example, if you want to get more exercise or lose weight or any of these things, it is not, you know, people often think it's a matter of willpower. You know, I just need to want it more. And people criticize other people because they don't have enough willpower. What's actually the, the systems that surround you um, that make it difficult. 
And so, you know, once you're aware of that, you know, you can, you can try to, you know, change some of those systems around you. And you can also break down what you change into really um, small steps that are achievable. The positive news is about it is if you can, you know, small steps can often have really big impacts. Um, there used to be a book called The Butterfly Effect, you know, that talked about, you know, small, you know, a little butterfly somewhere in the world because there are systems, you know, once you make a small change can have really large impacts because all these systems are connected with each other. And so you don't really need to make, you know, a huge change or small, you know, you just need to give it some time to ripple through it. And the more you can figure out where you need to make the change, um, that can have a huge effect. So if you want to make a change in your organization, sometimes, you know, if you figure out where that small change needs to happen, you can make big changes in your organization right there. So, so I think those are the things that, you know, I would encourage people to think about rather than just being busy and more productive. I love that, especially, uh, you know, when you mentioned systems and changing systems in your life or your business to change your life, it, it's just something that is really, I think, un, unknown or undervalued, the importance of having good systems in your life. And, and I'm a firm believer that the better systems that you have for your life at the right time, the better your life will be. And um, systems, for me, I, I think can really change everything. Um, systems run the business, uh, run, a, run the world. Uh, systems, believe it or not, run a marriage um, and relationships and the way we get food and um, understanding systems and which systems to put in your life at the right time absolutely can revolutionize the type of life that a person has um, and how productive they are too, just like you mentioned. So when they're often, they're often hard to see. So that's, yes. that's the hard part. You need to yes. kind of step out of that system because especially if it's something personal, um, you know, sometimes you can have a third party, you know, look at that and help you see the system that you are in because often it involves several people um, and um, or you need to be really good about, you know, detaching from that system and seeing it from the outside so you can see what part do you play, what part do other people play in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a, a quick example of that is I've lived abroad for nine years and you're from Germany as well. Yeah. There's a completely different perspective of seeing the United States from the outside looking mm -hmm. in versus being on the inside looking out and it is a whole different world both good and bad in, in perspective you know there's some great things from that um that point of view and some not so great things as well but uh it is a different perspective and with any type of system whether you're in a business or a relationship or um even your own self in the way that you behave stepping out of um you know the 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 self and to to observe yourself um, and how you operate on a daily basis from another perspective can you know be revolutionary for people as well so very well put my friend very well put so well i i've thoroughly enjoyed this interview i hope you have too um, it's such a pleasure to get to sit down with you and learn about the early days of linkedin and yourself and and what you're passionate about and the things that you're up to today um and i'm gonna wish you continued success and in, in your nonprofits or whatever ventures you decide to pursue um 
if there, the listeners want to reach out, Constantine, or learn more about what you have going on, uh, where's the best place that they could do that at? Well, it is LinkedIn. That's uh, why we started <laughs> it because you know, probably like many people, um, their email inbox just gets gets really flooded. You know, it's not hard to guess people's email addresses if you look for patterns and try different ones. But mm-hmm. but that's why people often don't respond to emails anymore. But uh, but LinkedIn is a, is a good way to do it. And, and the best way, I think, through LinkedIn is when you come introduced, to some, you know, through a common contact and LinkedIn can help you visualize that. So that's that's the, the best way, really. Excellent. Well, Constantine, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a fantastic story. I really appreciate that. And listeners, we're going to wrap up here. Thank you guys for tuning in once again. And we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. All right. Thanks, Chris. Hey, listeners. Thanks for joining us. And once again, we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community. If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today, and we'll see you on the next episode.